you want to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Acts, our subject today is praying. Part of the foundation of the church is prayer. One of the interesting things about the book of Acts is that there are key subjects like praying that you can study just in the book and uh, have an idea of how the early church, thank you, how the early church, what the early church considered to be important, how the early church saw God's will for them and how they did it and sometimes did not do it. But this is one of the subjects that is of great interest as we move through the book of Acts. On February the 7th, 1738, four Moravian believers, Peter Bowler, he was the one preaching, actually reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Can you imagine, just in human thinking, a more boring message? But there was a man there whose heart was strangely warmed when he came to a sense of what that meant. Peter Bowler was the Lord's man doing that. And along with George Shulius, Friedrich Niebuhr, and Abraham Richter, these four men arrived in February of 1738 to evangelize the English people. Say, wow, I thought they evangelized everybody else. No, the Anglican church was in an an unprecedented mess, not preaching the gospel. In May, they secured the use of a hall in Fetter Lane and formed the Fetter Lane Society, quote, for the purpose of discipleship and accountability. They met once a week for prayer and fellowship. Most of their members were from the Anglican Church. In the fall and winter of 1738, their meetings began to be attended by seven more Anglicans, three of whose dramatic conversions preaching uh, and preaching ministries were attracting hundreds of local followers. The three were... John and Charles Wesley, and with them, George Whitfield. Uh, in his journal, George Whitfield reported, sometimes whole nights were spent in prayer. Often have we been filled as with new wine, and often have we seen them overwhelmed with the divine presence And crying out, will God indeed dwell with men upon earth? How dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. John Wesley records in his journal from January 1st, 1739. So they'd been there almost a year when he recorded this. Misters Hall, Hinching, Hingham, Whitfield, Hitching, or Hutching rather, And my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. 
about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. I have never enjoyed prayer like that. I've had some very enjoyable times. But to have 60 gathered together and to have the presence of God that real and that transporting to the soul. Well, this was the beginning. 1739 was the beginning of the greatest revival the UK has ever seen. Last week, we looked at the foundation of the church in Acts 1 which is Jesus Christ and the mission of the church, which as Brother Logan presented to the children, is, is fastened to the key idea of being a witness. And this morning, by the grace of God, we are going to look at the praying of the church, both devoted and specific. But first, a little bit of background. Last week, we left a group of disciples gazing up into the sky as Jesus was ascending into heaven, not bumping his head on the ceiling, ascending into heaven. An amazing thing to watch. And uh, you remember the two angels speaking to them, and they said, men of Galilee. I just want to make a passing comment here. The word for men is aner. It is not a general word for people. It is the specific word for males. Just like gne is the specific word for females. Now, gne is mentioned 16 times in the book of Acts. Aner is mentioned over 60 times in the book of Acts. If I can put it this way, there is a lot of masculinity in the early church. A lot of that. Not a lot of testosterone. A lot of spirit-filled masculinity in the church. But they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The band had left the upper room in Jerusalem and walked to the two miles eastward over the top of the Mount of Olives and down the eastern side a little ways until they came to where the small village of Bethany was. This was the village that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived in. <clears throat> and somewhere in that general area was the place from which Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, after the angels spoke to these folks, and I mentioned last week, we don't know how many there were. There are 120 in the upper room. 
I would be surprised unless everybody but the disciples were told they had to stay there. I don't think that necessarily happened. You could have the whole 120 out there watching Jesus ascend into heaven and hearing what the angels said. Luke's gospel said that these folks worshipped Jesus both as he ascended and, this is Luke chapter 24, which we looked at a little bit last week, and they worshipped continually in the temple, Luke says. I would imagine the ascension would excite genuine worship. I would imagine that this would not be something any of those watching would ever forget and the impression it made on them. The theology that they learned from it, because you remember at the farewell discourse just uh, some weeks before this, Uh, He said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And they all said, aw, we want to come. No, you can't go where I'm going. And, of course, Peter, the ever vocal one, said, you know, I I can go wherever you are going. Uh, I will follow you no matter what. Just hours before he said, I don't even know who Jesus is. So... So a very uh, recent thing for them. Whatever evidence they had to this point to believe that Jesus was God, they now had more evidence to believe that he was God. And as he rose, you can imagine how they're putting together the things that he said in that farewell discourse. You can imagine how their theology is being rearranged from a lot of rabbinical influence to a lot more Jesus influence in their thinking. So then they returned the two miles to Jerusalem. Acts 1.12 says they then returned to Jerusalem from the Mount Olivet, or from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, The Sabbath day's journey, which was fixed at 2,000 cubits, That's 3,000 of 5,280 feet in a mile, so about between a half and three-quarters of a mile, which would be somewhere in the neighborhood of a kilometer. It was away from Jerusalem, Uh, and this it was called a Sabbath day's journey because that was the distance a Jew could walk on the Sabbath day without violating the tradition of Judaism. So, very interesting to think about this idea of tradition. In other words, God's word never said they could only go this far. God's word never said how far. His word said, you shall not do labor or work on the Sabbath day. And he left it to uh, other things that he said to know how to interpret this. So they, they've gone uh, Sabbath day's journey to the mountain and then up over the mountain to Bethany, which uh, John 11 says is two miles away from Jerusalem. All right, so once the disciples have returned to Jerusalem, 
Where did they go? Well, they went to a place that they were becoming very familiar with after they had the Last Supper there, after they listened to Jesus' farewell discourse, at least part of it there, before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it is where they have gathered for the last 40 days, and it's where they came from to watch the ascension and where they went back to, and we call it not the lower room, but the upper room, right? So they says they went back to the upper room where they were staying. And who were among these some 120 brethren? Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Not Judas Iscariot. And if you count up those names, you'll see that there are only 11 of them because Judas Iscariot at this point has died and gone to hell. As we have this service, that's where he still is and will be for all eternity. If you think the gospel doesn't scare you, you're not afraid of God, you're uh, a real testosterone kind of person, and you are a fool because it is a real place. And people who are not born again by the gospel of Jesus Christ are going there. And many of them already are there. And what did all these apostles and the other 110 or so people do when they arrived at the upper room? Our first point, they prayed. And I've entitled this Devoted Praying, since that's what the text entitles it. All these with one accord, that is, I think the all these refers to the disciples who were just named by name. All these and everybody else with them, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, the all these, a general reference, little, I'm not really surprised to see a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was at the cross, so uh, it's, it, it makes sense that the brethren would want to comfort and encourage her. She had been told by a godly man when she dedicated Jesus, she and her husband at the temple, shortly after his birth, that a sword would pierce her heart. Great sorrow as she saw her own child crucified and died and buried. And so it's not surprising that she was there, but it is surprising that the brothers were there because this is not, you know, brother Israelites. Uh... We've already been introduced to the number and to the disciples, and so it would be very awkward for him to use brother in that sense of the term here. No, it's referring to stepbrothers. And do you know why we call them stepbrothers? Because they have the same mother, but 
a different father. Okay? Jesus' father was God. And their father was Joseph. And so his stepbrothers are there. It is statements like this that when you're doing your Bible reading, you should stop and sort of speculate in a godly kind of way. I wonder what made them turn. I mean, it's one thing to grow up with a brother who always was right. That's one thing, but it's a whole other thing to watch your brother perform miracle after miracle and know that he truly did that. Back in John 7, though, it says that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. So it wasn't till quite late that they began to actually come to saving faith. And you know, it reminds us that when it comes to praying and ministering to lost people, we completely depend on the power of the Spirit of God to open their hearts. You will never talk anybody into going to heaven. We will never talk anybody into getting saved. But God can. And so here they are. They are gathered at this place. And what were they doing? With one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. Just as in a symphony orchestra, each member is playing a distinctive part of the music, and yet every part being played together in its time create beautiful music. So when believers pray and every part is, uh, by every believer is prayed with one accord, each one brings to their distinctive worship, burden, and faith prayers to God which he delights in. He delights in hearing the heart. And I would think, how does he listen to this heart and that heart and this heart? Well, praise God. He's not like me. Praise God he can do that to over 8 billion people in a moment of time without any difficulty whatsoever. And he does. People in our own time zone are worshiping right now. And his heart is delighted and maybe not so delighted with what's going on in the hearts of some. And we need to be aware of the wonder of this. The expression one accord indicates fundamental agreement as they prayed. And what would they, be, what would they have been in agreement of or about? Well, they know now he's going to send another comforter. This, comfort is, this comforter is coming, and he commanded us to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. They didn't know what that was going to be like necessarily. They didn't understand it was going to be the appearance of tongues of fire. They didn't understand that they were going to speak in foreign languages. They had no idea the impact of this on the people who had come for the Pentecost feast. But they anticipated this. They prayed that they would be ready for this. Uh, they, they sought God for conviction of sin, for his gracious work in salvation, for the divine enablement of the apostles. How are we going to know what to say? How are we going to know how to act? 
What are we going to do? Well, all of these things, they continually committed to praying. Well, um, you know, I thought about this. I, I, I thought about this whole scene with these Moravians and these brothers who led the English revival, and I thought, you know, I have done enough extended praying of my own and with others to know that sometimes the Spirit of God just keeps you awake. Sometimes He just keeps you focused, and you're not even aware of what He's doing at the time. You are just seeking His face. You are praying for the things that are on the heart. And some of those things are things that the Holy Ghost brings to your mind. You haven't thought about them ahead of time, but they need to be prayed for. It says there that they devoted themselves to prayer. This indicates that over these 10 days or so in the upper room, the believers were continually committed to praying. Devoted, committed is the idea. They were not necessarily praying 24 hours a day for 10 days. You would need more than a little help from the Holy Spirit to do that. But they perhaps set numbers of times per day. Uh, The Psalms talk about praying five times a day. Maybe they committed themselves to doing this a certain number of times during the day, and they all joined in. They were uniting themselves in prayer. They bathed themselves in prayer. They bathed their concerns in prayer. They had just found out recently that one of them was a complete traitor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Were there anybody, was there anybody else like that? Were there other disappointments they were going to have in the future? But this intensity of prayer likely led to the second kind of praying, and that is specific praying. The prayer was specifically for a replacement for Judas Iscariot in the number of the apostles. Why did they feel that they had to have 12? Well, I think one of the reasons that are alluded to, and we'll see that in just a moment, was 12 was the number of the tribes of Israel. So I don't see how that makes any difference. Well, you will better in a moment. And the number of Jesus' original disciples was 12. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus tells his 12 disciples, so Judas Iscariot was included among these, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones. He prescribes the number himself. Judging who? The 12 tribes of Israel. There's the connection. Notice Jesus says, you who have followed me. That certainly rules out Judas Iscariot, but it doesn't rule out Matthias. In, 15, uh, in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Uh, the company of the persons was about 120. And he said, and then he begins to speak to them. I want you to notice that Peter was the spokesman. Now, he had always argued for himself as the leader of the 12. Uh, but 
I think after denying the Lord three times, he was ready to go back to being a fisherman. He was done with apostling. Uh, he had failed utterly. He not only failed, he refused to listen to his Lord when his Lord said, you were going to deny me. He didn't even understand how weak he was. And folks, we better understand how weak we are. We assume that we're strong enough to resist temptation. That's just the first step down the wrong road. So uh, I think, though, what he lost for having denied Jesus three times, he gained back when the Lord Jesus saw him at the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, you know, there's just things about him that never change. Uh, he just leaps overboard and swims a hundred yards to shore to see Jesus. That is just the kind of individual he was. And Jesus addressed, of all the apostles, Jesus addressed him. Do you love me more than these? Three times until he was refreshed in that humility that he felt when he first denied the Lord. So I think, I think he gained his leadership among the apostles back when the Lord Jesus reinstated him into the apostolate. And then the necessity for specific praying. We've just sort of introduced the idea. We're talking about praying for specific things. And why was that necessary? There are three reasons why it was necessary. The last one is Judas is dead. Really hard to have a dead apostle preaching and bearing witness to the resurrection of Christ. He didn't believe the resurrection of Christ anyway. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe anything that did not earn him money. And if we are motivated by things of this earth, we are not living for God. Because where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. So... He said, first of all, it's necessary to fulfill the Scriptures. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, there must be a fulfillment of Scripture. This is just another way of saying what's actually there. It is necessary that we do this because of what the Scripture says. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter says, well, I don't remember seeing Judas's name in anything that David wrote. No, he wasn't named specifically. Now I'm going to skip over verses 18 and 19 and go right to where he quotes from the scripture. Psalm 69, 25, may his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In other words, not only is the camp uh, torn apart, but there's nobody there. There's no one who is the son of the enemy of David who is left in the camp. This pictures David pleading with God for deliverance from his enemies. In fact, Psalm 69 contains a verse that is quoted of the crucifixion. So we know we call this a messianic psalm or a psalm about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so when we read about the enemies of David, 
We're also to understand the enemies of the Messiah. Who were the enemies of Jesus? Well, we would say the scribes and Pharisees certainly were his enemies. But if we had to pick one that was the most malicious of all, it would be the one who claimed to be his follower, who was his betrayer for 30 pieces of silver. It's like robbing a bank and getting $2 for it. Just right, great big foolish across the top. And so this is how he applies it. Peter says, just as David prays that the camp of his enemies should be left desolate, so Jesus' enemy, Judas, should be left desolate as well. And if he's desolate, he can't be an apostle. And then he just quotes this short expression from Psalm 109, verse 8. Also pictures David praying against his enemies. And he says in this Psalm, verse 8, Lord, take away their position of leadership. And in fact, the Septuagint uh, translation of the Old Testament says, take away this person's office. Okay, he's a general, but Lord, take away the general and give his office to somebody else. And of course, that's a reference to Judas. The second reason that Judas needed to be replaced is because of his failure. Peter says Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And this is, this is the epitome of his treachery. When he came and didn't just point out who Jesus was, how did he do that? With a kiss. And the Lord himself even said, do you betray me with a kiss? Well, that is, I mean, you couldn't get Pharisees to kiss him, I don't think. But you could get a rascal like Judas to do it. He would, he would brook any treachery to get money. That's what he was doing. So, and uh, Peter adds to this, you know, he was numbered among us. He was allotted a share in our ministry. I made the comment when we were going through the life of Christ that Judas not only saw miracles almost on a daily basis some of the time, and yet did not believe, and probably performed these himself and did not believe. Third, it was necessary to replace Judas Iscariot because he died. And he says in verse 18, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. Yeah, the word gush is really gross, isn't it? I mean, you want to be able to say it more delicately. He died terribly. That would be nice, but uh, the, the treachery was judged by an equal amount of disgust to us, just as his treachery was disgust to, disgusting to God. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, the field 
of blood. He's giving a little explanation, Luke is. Because some of this information we have in Matthew chapter 27, and if you want to jot down the reference, it's verses 3 to 10 in Matthew 27. We have some of that information there, but the whole thing of dying so tragically and horribly, all we know is that it wasn't uh, Judas himself, it was the the, uh, scribes and Pharisees who refused to accept his money back because, in fact, they even called it blood money. They went out and bought the potter's field. And it was where they buried people who did not deserve to be buried in what they considered an appropriate grave. And then he went out and committed suicide by hanging himself. And yet apparently what happened is somebody either cut the rope or the rope just rotted and he finally fell and suffered horribly. But he needed to be replaced because the scripture said, and because he had failed as an apostle, he failed irretrievably. Did Peter fail? Yes, in a sense. But his failure was not irretrievable. There is always hope if there is repentance. But Judas was not going to repent. You go back and read through the Gospels again and see how gracious Jesus was to the one he knew would would never turn. Washing his feet the night he was betrayed. I mean, just, and the Lord Jesus is just as kind to you. Don't you ever question his willingness to forgive If you repent. Questioning that is a demonic thought. It is no Bible. You can, if you will, repent. So uh, it's to help the readers understand why that was necessary. Then they turn to the object of specific praying. We need a person. And so Peter says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, we lived with him day by day. There was early one morning, he went out by himself. He went into a solitary place and there he prayed. He wasn't always with the twelve. We need someone who was with us. And uh, I thought to myself, well, every time we read about him, he's most often just with his disciples. Really? (laughs) Is he just with them? I think we can get that impression because it doesn't say, you know, there were 150 people there with him, among whom were the disciples. Uh, But let me just remind you that in Luke chapter 10, he sends 72 men out on an evangelism mission. These are the ones who come back rejoicing because even the demons were subject to them. And he says, don't rejoice because they're subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written down in the book of life. And so, so there, and, and you read that, if you stop and think, you know, if you're not trying to hasten out the door to make sure you're at work on time, <laughs> if you just give a few minutes to reading and thinking about what we're reading, 72, where did he get 
the other 60 from? See? Well, obviously, they're not just with them earlier in his public ministry, but here they are in the upper room. And they have a number of them there. I mean, it was there that they chose the two. And what was the qualification? Someone who was with them and someone who was solidly convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had taken place. And again, we might think, well, of course, they saw him. They saw him multiple times. Do you know how many times it says they saw him and they did not believe it was him? Eleven times. Eleven times. So when it's this guy's job, whoever they picked to be a witness of the resurrection, they had to believe that it was him. They had to be convinced that he had truly raised from, uh, been raised from the dead. And these are the two requirements for the one they're looking for. And so the object is now recognized. The object was agreed upon. These are the qualifications. And now they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas and Justice. The guy had three names, all first names. Um, and Matthias. We think, well, but he's just normal or not quite as fancy as the other guy. I don't know. And notice what it says. It wasn't Peter that put them forward. It was all of them who agreed that these were the two between which they should choose. And then they prayed. And this is why we included praying on both sides. This was very specific praying. The other was continual praying. It was just as genuine of heart as any other praying is. Sometimes the most genuine praying is when the car is on black ice and as it spins around, we say, oh, God, help me. Now there's earnestness. But they do pray, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of everyone, of all. Remember what God told Samuel? Don't look on the outward appearance. Yeah, a lot of pretty people are rascals. Don't be swayed by prettiness. Uh, be swayed by what's inside. Be swayed by integrity. Even an ugly person with integrity is better than a pretty person without it. And so they uh, say, Lord, you're omniscient. You know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's a reference to him not just going to hell but to the place in hell for the man who did these things. And so uh, they appeal to God, asking him to choose the one perhaps most dedicated, most experienced, uh, probably if he's been there from the baptism of John all the way until now, probably he's had lots of testing along the way. Maybe he was one of the 72 Maybe both of these men were among the 72 who were sent back in Luke chapter 10. 
And the outcome, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the 11 or with the 11 apostles. Now, there is so much to exhaust this passage. Is it right for us to cast lots? We don't need to. We are led by the Spirit of God. And yet if you read church history, you'll find that at various times in church history, Christians did cast lots to try and understand what the will of God is. And they believe in the proverb that says, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. They say, Lord, I'm going to throw down these lots, and you just make them roll where they're supposed to roll. Well, it's much better if we call to the Lord himself, seek his face. I've had some very unusual leadership from God doing that. My whole call, I had been praying for a year and a half on where I should go. And I had been called and contacted and written by someone in Canada telling me, you don't just need to come to Canada, you need to come to Calgary. Yeah, we have it's English speaking. There are lots of other churches there. I mean, the, the premiers, two in a row, have been gospel preachers. What do they need other churches for? And it, it dawned on me in time that it doesn't make a difference how I analyze the situation. I am his. I am not mine. So I don't decide what's a good mission field and what's a bad mission field. Didn't want to tell my precious wife about it. I thought a good mission field is where you lost at least one wife and a bunch of kids. And when you were on your third wife, you were finally too old to do mission work anymore. Man, I'm a missionary. No. No. And not only did he not listen to my reasoning, he said, I want you to plant a church. And my prayer for a year and a half, Lord, I'll do anything except church plant. I'll do anything you want me to do except plant a church. I'll take whatever church you want me to take. And when I asked for real leadership, the Lord directed my path to a guy who had led a college-level, college-age missionary team to Canada, and uh, I said, where do you think there's a need in Canada? And as he started to talk about what city? Calgary. I just broke into a big grin. He said, what's the matter? I said, I know. I know where I'm supposed to go. <laughs> and, and I've been telling him no for a year and a half. I got a better idea, Lord, for where I should go. A harder place, worse. And, and you know, the blessing is my wife and I went to see a guy who worked in the upper Amazon basin. I mean, this was a mission field. You got anacondas. You, you got, you know, all kinds of dangers. You just dip your toe. There are piranhas in there. What a great mission field to go to. And I said to my wife as we left the missionary's house, isn't this great? She said, I will go wherever God wants me to go. That's a wife. I will do. I will follow you 
because we made promises when we got married, and I'm going to die keeping those promises. So what a blessing. And by the way, she said the only things she didn't like were snakes, and she was so grateful in her heart that there aren't snakes in Alberta. And we were here for two years before we found out, yes, there are. But the Lord was very kind to us. So this kind of leadership is helpful. Prayer, this is the lesson for us. Prayer is essential for the blessing of a church. Now, our church is going through a difficult time. The Lord is revealing difficulties in various individuals in the church and they're having to be dealt with and the leadership is trying to do the right thing according to what the word of God teaches us. We're trying to disciple, we're trying to uh, help people understand what is right. We need to be prayed for if we're going to do this right. But you need to be prayed for. And I told Brother Logan, I said, I appreciate you sending me the prayer list from Wednesday night. I have trouble with my night vision. I don't have much night vision, so it's very difficult for me to drive. So I haven't come to the prayer meetings for about a, I don't know, a couple of years or so, I guess. But I like praying through that. I like getting my directory and saying, Lord, I mean, I haven't thought about this family for a long time. They need grace. And this is what this passage teaches us. Prayer is essential. Prayer for what? For the preparedness of the Spirit's work. For the conviction, repentance, and the faith of sinners. God, work in people's hearts. For the discipleship and growth of the saints. Can you believe Moravians came to England to disciple the English? We need that kind of discipleship among ourselves. And for the separation, the call and equipping and sending of servants to preach the word of God. The Lord said for us to pray for laborers in his harvest. And that's not just preachers. That's preachers' wives. It's deacons and deacons' families. It is elders and elders' families. It is someone in the church or multiple ones in the church with a gift for evangelism. Laborers of every kind we should be praying for. And his promise is that if we ask according to his will, what happens? He hears and gives us that request. What a blessing for God to raise up, as he already has from our own assembly, men for his vocational preaching ministry. And others to serve as laborers without that specific a call. Let's be praying for each other. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of knowing you and seeking to walk with you. And Lord, we are so ashamed to fail so often. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to remember the words of Jacob when he said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercy and truth you have
shown to us. We don't come to you because we're worthy or because we are so regular in our devotions or so earnest in our praying. We come to you because we need you. We can do nothing without you. And so I pray for your blessing, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.